Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness, and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Now let's pray together as we come to God's holy word this morning. Our God and our Father, again as we come to your word, we come seeking your help. We ask Holy Spirit, that you would be with us, that you would illuminate the meaning of these words to our minds, and that you would impress them on our hearts in a way that gives us confidence of their truthfulness and of the holiness and also of the great mercy and grace and steadfast love of the God who they reveal. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Earlier in the service, we read that passage from 1 John chapter 2 together. You remember in verse 15, 1 John 2.15, John gives us this, this exhortation. He gives us this command, do not love the world or the things in the world. And as we think about that exhortation, there's a very important question that lies behind it, isn't there? And the question is, how? How exactly do we obey that command to not love the world and certain things in the world when our hearts, tainted by the sin that remains in us, tend to love the world and the things in the world. How do you change the affections of your heart? In the 1800s, a Scottish minister and theologian, Thomas Chalmers, addressed that exact question in a sermon that he's famous for based on that verse in 1 John 2.15. And the sermon was called, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Not the explosive power, the expulsive power of a new affection. Like expulsion from school, right? To 
Expulsion means to, to expel something, to get rid of it, to push it out. And Chalmers' point was precisely this, that the only way to expel our heart's affections for worldliness and for self and for sin is to continually infuse our hearts with a new affection. Namely, a growing and thriving affection for God and His holiness. Now we're going to come back to that at the end of our sermon this morning. And that's the main point that we're aiming at today as we continue on in our study of the book of Hosea. And we're looking together today at Hosea 5, chapters 5, 6, and 7 all together. So, so turn to those chapters in your Bibles and follow along as we sort of fly over them quickly this morning and, and look at what God has to reveal to us in these chapters. Last week, if you remember, in chapter 4, we got a pretty heavy-hitting, highly concentrated, high-octane dose of God's perspective on human sinfulness, didn't we? The holy God hates sin, hates it. The holy God judges Sin, always, in all of His perfect and unchangeable righteousness. He cannot let it go. He has to make everything that is wrong right. And that's what Israel was staring down the barrel of, right? In the 8th century B.C. The righteous wrath of Almighty Holy God against the wickedness and unfaithfulness of His people, Israel. That's what they were facing. And there in chapter 4, God also revealed to us something about the nature of human sin. We learned how, how sin tends to beget more sin. We learned how sin infuses and suffuses hearts and minds and lives and families and societies. Like leaven suffuses a whole lump of dough. We learned how sin, as it spreads and multiplies and grows, it corrupts and it decays. And it destroys. We saw that God says that there was no faithfulness among His people. No steadfast love. No knowledge of the Lord. And all of those heart deficits were what led to a whole host of sinful manifestations on the outside. Myriad forms of wickedness and corruption in their lives and in their land. Now today, following all of that, in these three chapters, chapter 5 through 7, once again, God takes us all the way down to the very heart of the matter and shows us the root problem, the core cause of all of the sinfulness and wickedness and debauchery and corruption and decay that is in people's lives and that is in our world. And and this is where now... If we haven't yet fully laid hold of this reality, this is where it becomes abundantly clear that through His Word in Hosea, God is talking to all of us. He's not just talking to 8th century Israel. He's not just talking to the people in the world who we look at as being really, really bad. The ones who do outwardly, all kinds of the most heinous, reprehensible, corrupt things that were going on in Israel or that go on in the world today. When God talks about sin, He's talking about all human beings. 
including all and every one of us, because the real problem is not just what happens on the outside. The real problem that God hates so much is what is and isn't going on on the inside in human hearts. And that's what God is exposing. That's what God is addressing in these chapters that we're going to look at here together. And even, again, even as we saw last week, all of this painful, uncomfortable, in-depth investigation and indictment of the deep realities of human sinfulness, all of it ultimately is meant by God not to leave us feeling all of this abiding guilt and shame. It's meant to draw us to Him by His unfathomable, unconditional love and grace that redeems and refines and forgives and justifies and sanctifies and washes and cleanses and purifies sinners into the image of His own glory. And that's, again, what we ended up seeing last week. So once again, keep that in your minds. Keep that ultimate gospel reality in your minds this morning, and God will, will point us toward it again in these chapters where He's unveiling the, the true core, the true heart of human sinfulness. And even as He takes us down into the deep valley where sin and judgment are exposed and seen, He shows us a glimpse of, of sort of the distant mountaintop of His grace, which is where the book of Hosea will end in its final chapters, as we're going to see in a few weeks. But before we can really, truly appreciate how really awesome and how truly great the greatness of God's grace is, we have to understand the reality and the ugliness of human sin that grace is responding to and that grace is saving us and has saved us from so that we'll know our actual need of that grace. And having received it, we'll be truly grateful for it And that's the way that our lives become more and more transformed by it. So, again, last week you remember that as God was indicting Israel for their their corporate corruption and sinfulness and unfaithfulness to Him, that He highlighted one group of people especially, right, as the guiltiest among them all, and that was the priests, because it was the priests' responsibility, it was their God-given calling to lead the people of the nation in holiness and in righteous living according to the Word of God, but they failed to do that entirely. And in their own sin, in their own depravity, they had just led the people straight off the the spiritual and moral cliff right into disaster, right into the abyss of judgment and destruction. So in chapter 5 now, Starting again with the priests and then including the kings there, look at verse 1. God once again proclaims that His judgment is coming on all of the people. The leaders of the people are implicated and the people themselves are implicated because they have wantonly and, and they have willingly followed the leaders along the pathway that leads to destruction. They're heading deep into slaughter, verse 2 says, as the Lord prepares to discipline the whole nation of Israel for their sin. Now, look closely at verse 3 as God leads us straight into what is the heart of the matter. Our translations say this, I know Ephraim 
and Israel is not hidden from me. And that's a good translation from the Hebrew, but it's important to realize that whenever God talks about knowing in relationship to people, that He uses the word know in a very specifically relational way. Like Adam knew his wife, and they conceived a child. There's an intimacy in this kind of knowledge between people, and God is a person and He knows His people relationally. And so yes, He's saying that He knows about them. He's saying that He knows what they've done. He's saying that He knows the details of their sinfulness. It hasn't been hidden from Him, but there's also a very real sense in which God is saying that He knows them. Like a husband knows a wife, which, which, right, that's the whole point of this book. That's the whole point of the picture that he's been painting in the book of Hosea, right? By having Hosea marry Gomer to illustrate the fact that there needs to be this intimacy between God and His people. And so at least one English translation reads verse 3 this way. Listen to it. It says, I have cared for Ephraim. And I have not neglected Israel, but now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore, and all Israel is defiled. You hear that? So it's, it's that sense of, of in spite of, right? It's that sense of, even though I've loved you so faithfully, Israel, you've been desperately unfaithful to me. That's the sense that's, that's really driving these chapters and what God is saying in these chapters in order to really expose the sickness of their hearts as sinners against Him. It's not first and foremost about what's going on outwardly. All of that is just a manifestation of the fact that inwardly they don't love God who has loved them so much. And that's the heart of human sinfulness. So the point is really this, ultimately, God is saying, even though I am the holy, unfailingly faithful God who has loved you so much, you have not loved me. And from your loveless, ungrateful heart has come every kind of sin and corruption. And that, see, is where the message of Hosea becomes instantly and ultimately relevant to all human beings, doesn't it? doesn't matter if you haven't committed the worst atrocities that, that can be committed in the world. doesn't matter if you've done fairly well outwardly maintaining a conformity to God's law in your life. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What was His answer? Quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, You shall love your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first, the prime commandment. And then he added, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, on these two commandments, love God and love your neighbor, depend all the law and all the prophets. It all boils down to that. See, everything that God reveals and commands about what's right and wrong, about what's good and evil, about what's righteous and holy and true, all of it depends on those two commands to love God with all our heart, all our heart. 
all our soul, all our mind. Raise your hand if you always do that all the time. That's the problem, see? And so, according to Jesus, right, who is God, who is all the fullness of deity in bodily form, who is the incarnation of the eternal holy God, according to Jesus, what matters to God has so much more to do with the inside than the outside, right? This is what Jesus was constantly exposing and confronting and condemning in in the Pharisees of his own day. They had the outside of the cup, all polished up and clean in terms of the way they lived their lives. But the inside was full of hypocrisy, was full of rot and decay. They did the right stuff outwardly. They refrained from doing all the wrong stuff outwardly. They didn't lie. They didn't cheat. They didn't steal. They went to the temple. They worshipped. They read the scriptures. They knew them inside and out. They were rigorously righteous on the outside, but none of it was coming from hearts that love God. And the incarnate God knew it and condemned them for it. And it's that same inward lack of love for God that God is focused on here in Hosea. That's that's why the metaphor that he ordains for his relationship to Israel to be pictured by is Hosea's relationship to Gomer. She wasn't just outwardly unfaithful. Her unfaithfulness came out of an inner lack of love for him. And that's what God wants us to see the most. So God says of Israel, look at verse 4 here of chapter 5. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Why? Why, even though that's what God wants? Why, even though God longs for them to return, to repent of their wicked deeds, why is it impossible for them to do so? Because the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord, remembering that knowing the Lord is meant relationally. They don't love Him. Love for God is not within them. Instead, this unfaithful, self-focused, corrupt spirit is within them. It's Israel's pride that testifies against them. That inner heart spirit that doesn't want God to be God. That says, I'll not be governed by Him. I want to call the shots in my own life. They don't love Him. They don't honor Him as the God who He is with all their hearts, with all their minds, with all their soul, with all their strength. That's why they stumble into all kinds of sin on the outside. So verse 6 With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord. He's talking about taking sacrifices to the temple to worship, but they won't find him. For he has withdrawn from them. Wow. They're going to go to the temple. They're going to bring herds of animals to sacrifice to the Lord. They're going to seek him there, but they're not going to find him because he has left. He's withdrawn from them. Because despite what they're doing outwardly, to bring sacrifices, to go to temple, to worship, in their hearts they don't love Him. And He knows. He knows. So He's withdrawing. 
like any husband would from a wife or any wife would from a husband when she's absolutely convinced that no matter what's going on on the outside, he just doesn't love her anymore. Here's how God says something very similar, speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah in the book of Isaiah, talking again to the people who were coming to the temple for worship. They were doing the right things outwardly, but their hearts were hard inwardly. Listen, just listen. This is Isaiah verse chapter 1, verse 11. God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? What does it matter? Says the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of your bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure your iniquity in my solemn assembly. Your new moons and appointed fasts my soul hates, says the Lord. They've become a burden to me and I am weary of bearing them. And listen, when you spread out your hands to sing God's praises, I will hide my eyes from you, says the Lord. And even though you make many prayers, I will not listen to you, says the Lord. Strong words, right? Because... When they're praying to God, it's all just lip service and He knows it. Because when they're there worshiping and performing the sacrifices and keeping all the ceremonies outwardly, it's all just outward formalism. Their hearts aren't in it and God knows it. They don't love the Lord their God and He knows it. And this ultimately, see, not just the outward idolatry and not just the outward immorality, but ultimately this, that their hearts don't love God and so have wandered away from Him. This is why His judgment is coming on them. Verse 8, Hosea 5, Blow the horn in Gibeah. You do that when the enemy's coming. Blow the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Sound the alarm because, again, judgment's coming and it's going to come. Historically, it did come in the form of the massive Assyrian invasion that would, again, within about a decade's time of Hosea's writing, it would bring fulfillment to exactly what God says here. Verse 9, Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Ephraim is the tribe that represents the entire northern kingdom of Israel. They will become a desolation, and desolation is exactly what happened. The northern kingdom would never recover from the Assyrians. They'd never come back from it. And God includes Judah too here. Look at verse 10 in this proclamation of judgment. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. It means they move the borders. And what he's talking about is this propensity in their greed to to unjustly take people's land away from them because they're discontent with the land that God has given to them. And so they're greedy for more than what God gives. Isaiah condemns the same thing in Isaiah 5. Shame on you, you who add house to house and join field to field until not an acre remains for anybody but you. 
Micah condemns the same thing. Micah chapter 2. They covet fields. They seize them. They take houses away from people. They oppress a man in his house. They take away his inheritance. All kinds of injustice and oppression have manifest, have grown like, like poisonous weeds out of the soil of their unloving and ungrateful hearts. And so the oppressors now, the point is, will be oppressed and crushed by judgment, verse 11. God will be to them, verse 12, like a moth is to a garment or like dry rot is to a house. It just means they will crumble under His judgment. Verse 13 predicts that when signs of trouble appear, when the Assyrians start to to really rattle their sabers, and it becomes obvious that, that, that Israel's about to get invaded, then, then Ephraim, again, the tribe that embodies the entire northern kingdom, they'll try to secure help, but not from God. Instead of praying to God, instead of repenting and turning to Him, they run off to the Assyrians themselves. And that's exactly what happened. They desperately tried to scrape together a, a payment... In order, to, in order to give it to the Assyrians to keep them from invading them. Worked for a little while, but it absolutely didn't last, obviously. Well, we'll take your money and your land then. Great. God says, I will be like a lion to Ephraim and a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry them off and no one shall rescue them. So, point is, The judgment was coming as surely as God is holy. In verse 15, God says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt. That's what God wants. That's what God desires. That's what God demands. They've got to acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress, earnestly Seek me. That's what He wants from them. And that carries us right into chapter 6 where God now is contrasting His own heart with their hard hearts. What He wants is to be merciful to them. But they must turn. They must repent. They must return to Him. And they won't. He wants them to turn back. But they don't want to turn because they don't want Him And so in a very real sense, God is saying, if you don't want me, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm out of here. They've lived their lives not loving Him. They lived their lives not wanting Him. And so He'd said He was going, remember, to withdraw from them. They would seek Him but not find any trace of Him. And that's what He means here now when He says, I will return to my place. I'm I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to leave you on your own. I'm going to leave you with your idols. I'm going to leave you with the Assyrians to whom you have appealed. But even in that, look at God's heart for them. Look at the warmth of God's love in spite of their loveless coldness towards Him. And despite His righteous purposes of judgment for them. He doesn't only hate their sin. He also still loves them. Because that's... That's who He is. And He's unchanging, is He not? God is love. Does He ever stop being love? No. God hates sin. Does He ever stop hating sin? No. God is just. Does He ever stop being just? No. 
And here, the holy God who is love, who will pour out judgment because of their sin, who will withdraw because in their coldness they've turned away from Him, He longs for them to come back. And not just with this outward conformity. Not just with, oh, well, okay, if we start doing all the right things again, maybe uh, you won't let judgment come upon us just because of what they can get out of Him with selfish motives. Now, what he wants is inward sincerity. He longs for them to earnestly seek Him, to love Him and so come to Him, to want to abide with Him in holiness no matter what. And then he describes, he describes what he's longing for in their hearts now. here's Here's what I want to be going on in their hearts in the first three verses of chapter 6. This is what he wants them to say. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. He wants them to, to trust him, to want him, to say after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know, lovingly know the Lord. His going out as sure as the dawn, and He will come to us as the showers. He'll be merciful, He'll be kind, He'll be good because He is good. Like the spring rains that water the earth. That's the kind of heartfelt repentance that God loves, that God desires, that God demands from His people. That's the kind of sincerity and confident dependence and reliance on His grace This is the kind of life-defining love for the God who is love and and who has showered them with blessing. This This is what He longs for in the hearts of His people. Now, some scholars and commentators think that they actually said those words, that the Israelites actually spoke these words in response to God speaking words of condemnation to them through Hosea. And maybe that's the case, but if it is then the rest of chapter 6 shows us that once again, the words weren't sincere. They didn't mean it. It was just just lip service. Because no matter what words of repentance they may have spoken with their mouths, their hearts still didn't love God like this because verse 4, right? Very next verse. What am I going to do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Because your love is like a morning cloud and like the dew that goes early away. Any love for God that they profess is just a vapor. It's just it's fleeting. It doesn't last. Just a flash in the pan. It's not genuine. Again, it's selfish. And this is the core problem that lies at the heart of everything else. This lack of love. This ephemeral, vapid, facile, lifeless kind of love that these people have for their God. Therefore, verse 5, right? Not just because of what they did on the outside, but because of what they were on the inside. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. This is why. And slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light, right? Because it all comes down to the heart, see? Verse 6, for I desire steadfast love and not just sacrifices. I don't care if you come and sacrifice a cow to me if you don't love me. I desire the knowledge of God. 
a loving, relational knowing of one another is what I want with my people and not just burnt offerings once in a while. That's what God wants. He doesn't just want outward duty. He doesn't just want conformity. Even if they were offering the sacrifices that he required, even if if they were burnt offerings, they weren't being offered from hearts that love God. So all of it was just undesirable to God, just like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. He, He said, you guys are just like whitewashed tombs. You walk through a graveyard and all the gravestones look really great. You've done a really, really good job of putting three coats of bright white paint on them to make them look spiffy. But underneath the stones is just decay and death. That's exactly what Jesus said the Pharisees were like. And so the problem that is exposed in Hosea chapter 6 is that the genuine, sincere, heartfelt repentance and holiness and love that God longs for is something that the people of Israel are completely incapable of. Because their hearts are hard. Because their hearts are cold towards God. That's why all the sin on the outside. That's why all the unfaithfulness and oppression and immorality and violence has come and characterized them as a people and a society, a nation on the outside. I would restore your fortunes, God cries to them in verse 11, if only they would genuinely return to Him and repent. I would heal you, He pleads in verse 1 of chapter 7, if only they would come back and return to Him and love Him but they won't. They won't, even though He has loved them for so long, so tenaciously, even though as a rejected husband, He has pleaded with them to come back, to return, to repent, to love Him again, even so they reject Him still. In verse 2 of chapter 7, look look closely at verse 2 of chapter 7 and understand this verse and understand it well. I think this verse is the most alarming thing that God says in these chapters that we're looking at today. He says, They do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them, and they are before my face. So they have become so self-absorbed, so self-focused, in the pridefulness of their hearts, so consumed with their own desires, so happy to accept all the blessings that God has really lavished on them for the last 50 to 100 years of their existence, for all their lives in terms of the generation that Hosea is actually writing to. So content with this outside-of-the-cup kind of formalism. They become so content that God Himself has actually become irrelevant to them. His holiness, His righteousness, His hatred of sin doesn't even factor into the equation of their lives anymore. Bah. Life's good. And do whatever I want. God doesn't care. It's all about me. Literally, they don't even consider that God remembers all evil. They don't even give it a second thought that he might be displeased with the way they're living. They couldn't care less about what God wanted and what honors him. 
that was the real heart of the matter. And I, and I do hope the Holy Spirit, and He sure has been in my heart this week as I've studied these passages, is shining the big searchlight of His holiness into our hearts and going, is, is that stuff in there? Is a lack of love for God in there? Is a love for lots of stuff more than God in there? Is, a, is, a, is, a, is an attitude that he's irrelevant because life's pretty good and I don't need to honor him in there, in my heart? This was the real heart of the matter. This was what mattered far more to God even than all of the outward sin that came from it. It's this inner indifference towards him whereby they just found him to be irrelevant. They're just going through the motions. Is any of that in, in there? You remember the question that we posed several times last week from chapter 4, right? What about our lives? What about our land? And it's easy to see and it's easy to say with assurance that in our land, more and more and more, God has become irrelevant more and more and more. What pleases God, what honors God, what God loves, what God hates, all of that matters less and less and less to our own leaders, and thereby to the people of this land who are being led by a lack of love for God. In chapter 7, coming into that now, God declares that in Israel, which just, just like in our land, in Israel all of this cold, calloused, hard-hearted indifference toward Him had, had permeated to the highest levels. Right, The wickedness of the people made the king glad, verse 3 says. From top to bottom, Israel was characterized by this heartlessness towards God, which spawned every kind of outward evil, from this hollow, hypocritical formalism in their worship to the spiritually adulterous idolatry that had infested the land as they were worshiping pagan gods, to all of the immorality that brought corruption and rot and decay to the whole society. All of it came out of this indifference towards God. And now God will employ, in chapter 7, quickly a a series of similes in order to illustrate throughout the rest of chapter 7, in order to illustrate this spiritual condition and its consequences. Verse 4, look, chapter 7, he says, he says they're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire. He's talking about the old style ovens, not gas ovens, right? With thermostats and thermocouples and all that. No, no, this is just an oven where you pile wood or coal into it. And you light that wood, you light that fuel, and in order to keep it hot and get it more hot, what do you got to do? You got to stir it, right? You got to stoke that fire up. And you got to keep doing that so it gets hot and stays hot. But this one doesn't need to be stoked, see? They've become like a, a self propagating fire that gets hotter and hotter and hotter all on its own, right? This is kind of like a runaway nuclear reactor that doesn't need anybody to, to feed it. That's the picture here of the nation. They're in full-on spiritual and moral meltdown. That was Israel in the 8th century B.C. Verse 8, Ephraim is like a cake unturned. Raw, doughy, 
on one side and burnt, charred on the other side. You don't want to eat that. That's the point. George Adam Smith makes this comment. It's pretty poignant about this image. He says, how better to describe a half-fed people, a half-cultured society, a half-lived religion, a half-hearted nation than by a half-baked scone? (laughs) Again, raw on one side, burnt on the other. It's inedible, it's useless, it's gross. And it is that way in Israel because they've mixed themselves with the nations. They have loved the world and the things in the world as John warns us against in 1 John 2.15. It's caused a dilution of their faith until it's almost not even there anymore. And it's caused pollution too. They've become in that pollution and in that dilution they've become spiritually and morally emaciated. Verse 9, strangers devour Israel's strength. That's what friendship with the world does. It makes us spiritually weak. That's why John says, don't love the world, don't love the things of the world, because it weakens your faith and it weakens you spiritually. Look at the image here. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, Israel, and he knows it not. You get that picture? It's, it's the picture of a, a guy who thinks he's really young and hip and strong and virile and looking good to the old ladies, but really he's old and decrepit, and he doesn't even know it. Israel thinks they're living their best life, living for self, unconcerned. I know I've got gray hair up here, so perhaps I'm describing myself. They think they're... They think they're living their best life now, but but they're unconcerned about God. They're unconcerned about holiness. They're living for the things of the world. They think they're in their prime because things are just swimming. But in reality, they're old and they're withering and they're dying. And they don't even see it. They don't even know it. So they don't know they need to return to the Lord for strength. And so they don't. They don't seek Him. Because they become so calloused and disillusioned by their sin that they don't realize how badly they need Him in His grace and His strength. They are, God says in verse 11, like a dove, silly and without sense. (laughs) Literally a dumb, stupid bird calling out to Egypt and Assyria, right? Looking to the world, to the other nations for the help and security that they should be finding through faithfulness and love to their God. He's pleading with them to return. I'm right here. I got all you need. I am all you need. Just come back and love me and abide with me. And then they just go flying off like birds looking anywhere but to him to find what they think they need. And so God will will throw a net over them, it says, over the silly birds. Bring them down because they've strayed from Him. Sums it all up, doesn't He? In verse 14, they do not cry to me from the heart. That's it, from the heart. They return, verse 16, but not upward. If they do look to God... It's down on him and not up to him. It's down like he's their servant and not up like he's their king. 
It's down like he's a butler who just exists to give them whatever they want. That's why they'll pray to him. But it's not up in love and devotion to the holy and eternal and and loving God who he is. Is any of that in there in our hearts? I'll pray to you if you'll go fetch me whatever I demand. But I don't really love you. And surely they don't serve him, right? So, I mean, wow. I mean, this is, when God gets to the heart, it's, it's the real deal. This is a disturbingly penetrating diagnosis of the sinful human heart. Again, which leaves us, if we're honest, with, with no real way at all, ultimately, to try to put ourselves in any kind of better light than the worst offenders in Israel. Because except by the grace of God, we're no different on the inside. We didn't love him. We didn't want him. We didn't look up to him. God's not impressed with whatever's going on on the outside if it's not coming from a genuine love for him on the inside. That's the point. The Lord sees not as a man sees, 1 Samuel 16 says. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord searches the heart and the mind. Jeremiah 17.10 The Lord, listen to this one, 1 Chronicles 28.9 He understands every intent and inclination of the thoughts. Well, of course He does. He's omniscient, right? And we just like to say that and, and, and easily run past this uncomfortable reality that, that this omniscient God understands every intent and inclination of our thoughts. I mean, we certainly don't want anybody knowing all of that, do we? We don't, we don't tell one another about every inclination and intent of our thoughts and attitude. We don't want anybody asking, right? You go over to somebody's house for dinner... And you sit down, and how was your week? How's work? And, you know, why don't you tell me about the worst inclinations and intentions of your thoughts and attitudes this week? (laughs) I mean, God sees it all and doesn't need to be asked. Searches it all, knows it all. And the God who sees it all and searches it all and understands it all desires steadfast love in our hearts, mercy in our hearts, more than outward sacrifice, more than outward formalistic conformity. That's what he wants. Genuine love for him. Not just doing our duty in order to get what we want from him. Do you love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, always, all the time? This is the problem, right? Because the answer still as Christians with new hearts is, is no, I don't all the time. But see, he will have nothing less than that because he is a holy and loving and jealous and pure husband. And he doesn't want to compete with anyone. Well, Israel had none of it. No love for him in their hearts. Because their hearts were just full of love for self and for sin, and for the world, and for the things of the world. God longed for them to turn back in love, but God cried out for them to repent, but God wanted them to come to Him as a faithful, loving bride 
who even though she'd sinned, felt genuine sorrow for the sin and love for her Lord and say, oh God, and He would heal them. But they wouldn't do it. He would restore their fortunes, but they wouldn't do it. And the reason they wouldn't do it is because they couldn't do it because they had so poisoned their hearts with love for self and love for this world and the things of this world. And this, this is the condition of all human beings in our natural state, right? The Word of God testifies to us uh, of this fact from cover to cover. From Genesis 6, where God says that every intention of their hearts was only evil all the time. To Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9, where God says that the human heart is deceitful above all things and so desperately sick that no one can even comprehend it. To Romans 3, where Paul quotes the Psalms and the prophets in order to declare and proclaim that there are none who are righteous, no, not one. All have turned away and gone astray from God. All have turned aside and sinned in all kinds of ways because there's no fear of God in their eyes. There's no love of God in their hearts. So through and through, God's Word is full of this same dire diagnosis of the human heart. The problem's not what you do outwardly or fail to do. The problem's what you are inwardly. Every human heart is full of love for anything and everything other than God and more than God. Now, quickly, look back up at those verses at the beginning of Hosea chapter 6. Ian read them, verses 1 through 3. God, again, is describing, right, exactly what He desires and demands from sinful people. Return to the Lord. Be healed by the Lord. Be bound up by the bonds of the mercy and the love and the grace of God. Be revived on the inside. Made made alive again on the inside by God. That's what He wants. Be raised up to live in holiness and righteousness with your God. And do you see in those verses... Not just a description of what God desires and demands, but also a really glorious glimpse in the midst of this dark valley that we're in of what He would actually do. What no human being dead in sins and trespasses, as all human beings naturally are, could ever possibly do. Right? The dead cannot raise themselves to life, can they? We can't revive ourselves, can we, when we're dead? Lazarus could not stir himself and bring himself out of that tomb that he was in for four days and his flesh was decaying and they could all smell it outside. He couldn't do that, right? It took the power of the word of Christ literally summoning him to life again for him to come forth from the tomb because Christ Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He was the one, right, who died, who was in the tomb for two days, who was raised on the third day. The bells are already ringing in Hosea chapter 6. He's the one, Jesus, who by grace alone, through faith in Him alone, have raised, has raised all who believe to newness of life in Him. Because He does it. We were buried with Him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6 verse 4. 
And so right there in Hosea 6, in the middle of this, this horrifying diagnosis of inner spiritual death and rot and decay, God's not just declaring what He desires and demands. He's lovingly and mercifully describing what He's going to do. He's going to create the new hearts that He craves in His people. He's going to put His Spirit into their spirits like He says He will do in Ezekiel. He's going to make their hearts of stone into soft hearts of flesh that love Him. And if you are His this morning through faith in Jesus, then that is exactly what He has done to you, for you, in you. Because if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 And... At the same time, as new creations in Christ Jesus, who have new hearts of flesh forged by the Holy Spirit of God, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, as new creations, sin still remains in us, right? It no longer has dominion over us, Romans 6, praise be to God, but the old residue of it is still there. Old habits, old desires. Old loves for self, for the world, for the things in the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world, but we still do in a lot of ways and a lot of times, don't we? Even as new creations. We don't love Him with all our heart, do we? With all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. Not yet. There are still other loves. Still idols that we... Sometime that we oftentimes love more than we love Him. And that brings us right back to where we started, right? Don't love the world or the things in the world. Well, how? How do we change the affections of our hearts? Now that we have new hearts, how do we chase the love of self, the love of the world, the love of sin out of our hearts? Let me borrow an illustration that I heard from someone else. If you were in a laboratory which was stocked with every conceivable piece of laboratory equipment that is known to man, and you had a big old glass, one of those big old glass flasks, and you looked at that flask and you said, there's nothing in it, it's empty. Even if it looks empty, it's, it's actually not empty, is it? Even if it looks empty, it's actually full, isn't it, of something? What's it full of? Air. Exactly. So how would you, in that laboratory, with any lab equipment known to man at your disposal, how would you remove all the air from that flask? There are two ways. You could put an airtight stopper on the flask and then put a hose through it, attach the hose to a vacuum pump and pump all the air out of the flask, right? Leaving a vacuum on the inside. You could. It's hard to do, but you could if you had all the equipment. And nature, we all know from elementary science, right? Nature abhors a vacuum, So it's hard to do it. Nature wants to fill the vacuum with something. So creating a vacuum in the flask by pumping all the air out of the flask is is tough. Well, there's another way. 
There's a lot simpler way. A better way to remove all the air from the flask. You know what it is? Yeah, put something else in the flask. What? Yeah, fill it with water. Fill it with something else. Put water in it and then all of the air is gone. That's it. No vacuum. You, you push all of the air out by replacing it with the water, right? Now, I mentioned Thomas Chalmers at the beginning of the service. And his sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Expulsive to expel, to push something out. How do you push all the air out of the beaker? You fill it up with water. How do you push out your heart's affections for self and for sin and for this world and for the things of this world which are diluting your faith, which are polluting your faith, which are weakening you? You fill your heart with a new affection. That was Chalmers' point. Listen, he said... Such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have something to lay hold of and which if if rested away without the substitution of something else in its place would leave a void, a vacuum, a vacancy as painful to the soul as hunger is to the natural system. As true as it is in in physics that, that nature abhors a vacuum, it's even more true of the human heart. You can't just rest away the heart's affection for self and sin and the world and the things of the world without substituting something in its place. You can't just pump sinful desire out of your heart. And I would contend that that's exactly what the religions of the world and even our impulse sometimes as Christians is to do. Let's use guilt. Let's use shame. Let's use fear to try to just suck all the sin out of people doesn't work. you got to replace it with something. A new affection. You get it? As people who are new creations in Christ and have new hearts in Him, our hearts don't need and don't want to just be a vacuum. They want to be full. And the only way to get all the air out of the beaker without creating a vacuum is to fill it up with water. So sin remains in us. My heart still loves certain things more than it loves God. Some of them are inherently sinful. Some of them aren't, but it doesn't matter because the air of idolatry is filling my heart still and trying to pump it out with fear and guilt and shame just doesn't work. We have got to fill our hearts in Christ with Christ, with His glory, with His beauty, with His love, with His grace, with His truth. Let it abide richly in you. That is what God does by His Spirit, through regeneration, new creation, and the power of Christ in us, abiding in us as the Word of Christ dwells richly in us. The song that we're about to sing was chosen, thanks to Ian, was chosen because it says exactly this. Page 11 on your bulletins. Verse 2 of this hymn. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of this earth? What can make the love of the world seem unlovely? What can make my heart stop 
being enamored with the idols of the earth, with self, with sin, with the world, with the things of the world. What can make my heart stop idolizing everything in sight and loving stuff more than I love God? Well, not the sense of right alone or duty. Not just this bare sense that that we have to do things this way or else. I mean, that's just selfish conformity and formalism, right? Like a child who only obeys in order to get what he wants or to avoid the punishment that he fears. Not because he loves his mommy and daddy who love him. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of this earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Peerless just means unmatched, without peers, unsurpassed, incomparable. It means look to Christ. Look to Him who is more worthy. Look to Him who is more beautiful. Look to Him who is more holy and awesome and lovely than anything actually is. That is the water that will drive the air of sinful affection from our hearts. The sight of the unmatched glory and love and grace of God in Christ Jesus. We have got to be filling our hearts and minds and souls with it and with Him and with His Word regularly. And constantly, or else the air of selfish, worldly, sinful desire rushes right back in, right? You pour the water out of the flask, how long does it take for the air to get back in? No time. You don't have time. You only have Christ. Nature abhors vacuum. So does your soul. So Christians, fill your hearts with Him constantly, period. Amen? Let's pray and then we'll sing. Our God and our Father, thank you for the painful surgeon's scalpel that your word is, which cuts down into our hearts and exposes at the very core of our beings everything that needs to be excised. And then Father points us to Christ who is the great physician and who has healed us, who has raised us up, who has bound us up, who has given us life and revived us. Now Father, fill us with a knowledge of Him that pushes every other love aside. This we pray for the sake of Your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together.